You're listening to the Kiwi Tripsters Travel Podcast. Brought to you by Abercrombie and Kent, pioneering experiential luxury travel since 1962. Buckle up and take off every fortnight to spectacular destinations as we share the inside word on all things travel. Whether you're into luxury travel or tripping on a budget, whether it's river cruising or foodie trips, we've got you covered with top tips and tricks so you can have an awesome travel experience. Tune in with Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. And be sure to like and share this episode so everyone can get a taste of all things travel and now on to the show with your host from Christchurch New Zealand Mike Yardley and Chris Lynch welcome aboard for another episode of Kiwi tripsters I'm Mike Yardley hello Michael how are you it's good I'm to see you very you, very well Chris yourself I am I'm rearing to go who are you you're Chris Lynch I'm Chris you? Lynch that's yes. right yes. we're kicking off this episode by heading to Euroland and Frankfurt uh, which many Europeans would say is their answer to Manhattan now is that a fair thing to say Mike yeah it is when you get there for the first time um, it's the skyscrapers that really bring that statement to life because uh, Frankfurt has the biggest concentration of skyscrapers in continental Europe, and they actually um, have the nickname Minehattan, which is a play on Manhattan, because the main river through Frankfurt is the Main River. So all these skyscrapers sort of back the river. And then you've got all the medieval buildings, most of which were bombed to bits and rebuilt after World War II. And the amazing thing, Chris, is the attention to detail in the medieval buildings um, and the restoration, it's been done so well, you cannot actually tell whether you are looking at mm. a reproduction or the medieval original rebuilt. The Opera House is a really good example. They only finished restoring that in the 1980s. So, you know, bombed in World War II, out of action for, yeah, 40 years or so. Is the Romanburg your favourite spot? Well, it certainly gets the cameras clicking. Uh, yeah. Rom- Romanburg is your classic old town square and... It's the medieval timbered buildings there that people absolutely love. There is one amazing building, which would be my favourite, the old Imperial Hall. And um, this is where they used to have coronation banquets for about 50 different kings over the period of time in the Holy Roman Empire. And of course, I think we've touched on this before Christmas, Chris, uh, being a Christmas tragic myself, Romerberg, this old town square, stages one of Europe's biggest Christmas markets, and they've been doing that there since 1393. So if you've been looking at some of the cheap early bird airfares that are currently doing the rounds, <laughs> now would be a good time to box some tickets for Frankfurt and enjoy some glue vine in November. I'm not sure what makes you a Christmas tragic. It's not like you've still got your Christmas tree up in your home. No, well, I think uh, the, the, the decorations <laughs> finally came down around January 20, Chris. Just bit as late, well. Bit bit late, late. Yes. No, nothing wrong with that. Hey, listen, tell us about Bornheim. Yeah, if you want to get off the tourist trail in Frankfurt, um, take a stroll around Bornheim. It's a res- residential district with a difference because it's the only part of Frankfurt where the medieval-style houses actually escaped the war unscathed. So it's the only pocket of true old-time Frankfurt um, before Hitler came along. And then another really cool pocket is this alley that leads off Romerberg, the old town square. And the alley is absolutely packed with the wackiest looking pencil-thin four-story townhouses. And they were all the winning entries 
in an urban design competition, which was very much pitched around coming up with really creative ideas for 21st century designer townhouses. From what I understand, most of them have now been hocked off on Airbnb, so you can stay in them. <laughs> but they are anything but cookie cutter and artistically, the exteriors are just brilliant. It's definitely a must-see. Is this the Goethe territory? Yeah, the locals in Frankfurt absolutely revere Goethe, more than their sausage, actually, in Frankfurt. Um, And uh, Goethe is is probably best um, described as being Germany's answer to William Shakespeare. He was born in the 1700s, and not far from Romerberg, you can visit his family home, which is this big Baroque mansion. It's now the Goethe Museum. It's got lots of memorabilia. And he once wrote this line, which I absolutely love, offer plenty and you will surely please some. And I think that should be the mantra for Kiwi Tripsters. Yeah, oh, I like that. I like that. What about zeal? You would love zeal, Chris, because... I used to have zeal jeans. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Um, like many European cities, Frankfurt's downtown shopping district is totally pedestrianised and the Zeal is this two-kilometre-long vehicle-free promenade that snakes its way through the heart of the city. And when I first visited Frankfurt about a decade ago, the futuristic shopping mall, My Zeal, had just opened. It still looks so tomorrow when you go there now. It is such a traffic stopper. It has Europe's longest escalator, which zips you up five floors nonstop which is a hell of a height for an escalator. The interior design is like something out of a science fiction novel. It is, um, it's like the roof is exploding in glass (laughs) because the interior has been created to look like this huge curved glass vortex, which starts at the ground floor and sort of explodes out the roof as if you're going to be sucked into it and sent into the sky. It is absolutely stunning. Where's best for the cider bars? Yeah, well, obviously, Frankfurt loves its cider bars. I think it's a bit of an acquired taste. But if you want to uh, check out the party scene in Frankfurt, cider bars is where the party's out. And um, the the district to head to is Sachsenhausen District, which is a very short walk from the central city. They've got the best traditional cider bars. The Atmos is really cool. I feel like one now. <laughs> Did you make any sort of quirky discoveries in your last visit to Frankfurt? Yeah, well, something... You always do. Well, I always try and find something a bit different, Chris. <laughs> something I stumbled upon by chance along the Mine River is this international get-together that they call Montmartre on Mine. And it's basically an open-air painting session with like-minded artists. So it's very much a case of bring your own easel or your sketchbook, kind of like a painting equivalent of a jam session. And it's on every Sunday on the Mine River, and it's a very cool site. From Frankfurt to our own backyard, and Chris, you've just been tucking into one of my favourite pockets of New Zealand, the Mackenzie, with a particular focus on the constellations above us. Uh, Take us through what you did in Tekapo. Oh, what an amazing place to be. This is the kind of place that I would always visit as a child, always remains the same. But in a good way. Mm-hmm. You know, it never it never dates, it never looks ugly. It's always beautiful, full of tourists, but never too busy. Well, I was lucky enough to go to the Dark Sky Project. And this is something I would recommend everybody 
goes to see. Even if you're not even into ast- uh, astronomy yeah. or stars, I was lucky enough to do the day tour and the night tour. Let's start with the night tour. That's what I first did. Mm-hmm. I went up um, to the Mount John Observatory, yep. which is only a five-minute drive from the main town of Lake Tikapo. You didn't walk up? No. no. This is because it was the twilight tour, oh, Michael. Yes. So we you got, could have taken a torch. No, we could have. Uh, we got into a, a minivan, a wee bus, and that takes you up to the Mount John Observatory at about 9.30. Yep. And from there, there was only about uh, 15 of us, so it wasn't too busy. Mm-hmm. From there, you get a tour of all the machinery where some of the main uh, mechanics are to look at the stars, and we could actually talk to some of the physicists that were there as well. And it was a lovely, lovely experience, and I really enjoyed it. And then, of course, once it gets completely dark, you can see some of the stars up as close as you can possibly see. Mm. Not just that, though. So you go into one um, observatory and look at the stars through the, the massive telescopes, but yeah. then you can look at the uh, the moon uh, with these smaller telescopes they have stationed outside. And when you look at the moon, you can actually see the moon's surface up close and personal. Did and you see the craters? Yes. Yeah. And for me, that was just incredible. Mm. Not only could you see the craters, but you could also see the craters around the perimeter of the moon. It actually reminded me of a cartoon. I wondered, have they just put in a, a DVD slide? Maybe they go. did. No, they didn't. No. Trust me. But the guides were from Canterbury University. They were interesting. They were engaging. But they were, they talked us through what Canterbury University's input was to this amazing facility. But it wasn't overwhelming. Mm. But it wasn't dumb. It was just perfect. And we were, we were allowed to take photos inside and outside. And it was just incredible. You've done it, haven't you? I did it probably about four or five years ago. And I yeah. think it's actually quite addictive because once you start seeing, you know, whether it's the moon or Mars or Saturn's rings mm. up close, it becomes like this voyage of discovery. You want to see more stuff up close out there. Yeah, you do. It's funny you say that because after the visit, I started to get on to Google and Googling images of the moon and seeing what else I could see. Alpha Centauri. Oh, the whole lot. But, um, <laughs> you know, you got a you got a, a wee brownie and you got a, um, a coffee or a, a hot chocolate there and they would take you through and you could watch a slide from what else they do there. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was the real deal. This is a working observatory, one of the best in the world. Yeah. Where they've actually made, you know, uh, hundreds of important or internationally significant discoveries. Yes. It's amazing. And to think that it's only, you know, a couple of hours drive from Christchurch, New Zealand. Yeah. When I was there, and I'm sure it's probably still the case now, alongside the um, astronomers and astrophysicists from Canterbury University, they had a team of Japanese um, specialists who they were doing like sort of a joint international project um, with respect to the solar system. I think the Japanese are still there, but it's absolutely internationally relate, uh, rated. And obviously it's an internationally regarded dark sky reserve. In mm. fact, it's the biggest such reserve um, in the Southern Hemisphere. UNESCO-related accreditation yeah, or totally. something like that. And yeah. you can see why. Yeah. You can see why. It is beautiful. Then we did the, the next day, my friend and I, we went and did the dark sky experience. This is something you can do during the day. It's basically what you would call a multimedia experience. Now, this is based in the fairly new facility. I think it's only been open about two yes, about or two so years, years there. Mm-hmm. And this is where Naitahu, um, the tribe here in the South Island, gets involved because it's all about the Māori experience. It's all about how um, the early settlers or, of, of Māori mm-hmm. uh, would discover their place by looking at the stars and, what, and how they 
the night sky affected them yeah. and different names and interpretations and their astronomy, if you like, and the myths and legends that go with the stars that, to be fair, I had no understanding of. Mm-hmm. Well, this was simply out of this world. It really was. You could you could learn that a little bit of uh, Māori history. Once again, it wasn't overwhelming. Uh, it was done in a matter-of-fact manner that made it so fascinating. But the way that it was made fascinating was the the true multimedia stuff. You could, you could go up to, you know, a scale version of the sun and touch the sun and its surrounding stars. Uh, you would then go into what looks like a bit of a disco ball room and there were projectors that would be projecting images and animations of Māori history. It was just phenomenal. Mm. I think it was about an hour of the whole experience, but this was just as good. And I say this sincerely, this was just as good as going up to Mount John Observatory. They have done a spectacular job. They really have. Mm. Have you done this one yet? I haven't done the day experience, no. But um, that, that's, I think, really been the latest addition to Tekapo's offerings in terms yeah. of astro-tourism. And yeah, it's great that Naitahu have yeah, added yeah. their perspective to it because... It's, it's a unique point of difference, isn't it? And I thought, good on them. Um, the tour guide was obviously Māori himself, and he was yeah. just a really lovely chap. He did a karakia to start with, yeah. and then um, you know we're guided through to watch um, a, a visual interpretation of some of the, the Māori um, skies and what it means for them. Mm. And then at the very end, you can see um, a telescope that's famous in its own right that was uh, created in the 18th century, which I understand, hopefully by the time this goes to broadcast, that will be fully operational for people to to use as well. Great. Um, they've got a great cafe as well, a lovely restaurant experience that overlooks Lake Tikapa. I mean, yeah. this is just a world-class event. I cannot speak highly of it. By the way, a correction to something I just said. I've just checked my notes and the Mackenzie Dark Sky Reserve... Mm was actually uh, the first reserve in the Southern Hemisphere, and it still is the world's largest. Well, there you go. So that's pretty cool. And it's amazing, actually, because obviously all these things are weather-dependent in terms of are you going to get a nice, clear night sky? Mm, That's true. But the Mackenzie actually has an incredible... record of having so many clear nights compared to most places around New Zealand. And it's obviously got something to do with the fact you've got all of the Southern Alps out to the west. It is elevated. It's like an elevated plateau Mm. um, from the Canterbury Plains. Um, So it it sort of like creates its own climate, the Mackenzie region. It it does. And they're very upfront at the start. I mean, when I went on my night tour, uh, it was actually cloudy, a little bit overcast. It was supposed to clear. And they make it very honest in saying, look, you may not see something tonight so they sure. give you other options for other attractions. Yeah. But everybody took a chance and thank goodness we did because that cloud cleared up the moment we were there mm. and we just, you know, seeing that moon so close yeah. is just something that… Um, Surreal. Yeah, I will really treasure. Yeah. I will really treasure. It's definitely a must do. It is. Now, coming up, um, we are actually going to take you to uh, Japan and also we'll be checking out London's quirky museums. Sounds good. Stay tuned. Kiwi Tripsters will be right back after this break. An Abercrombie and Kent luxury safari is quite simply the greatest outdoor adventure holiday you will ever have. Choose your own adventure in South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, Kenya and many other countries on a continent no one knows like Abercrombie and Kent. The adventure starts here. 
abercrombiekent.co.nz. This year marks the 75th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing, bringing World War II to an end. Mike, I've got to ask, is this atomic bomb legacy, is it fair to say it's the city's biggest visitor magnet? Because it's quite an odd thing to to want to be a part of in a way, isn't it? Definitely, Chris. Um, But yeah, Hiroshima's darkest days have given rise to a booming and enduring visitor industry. Obviously, that is going to crank up even more through this year, um, you know, as we close in on the anniversary. But disaster tourism is such an interesting dynamic because being Christchurch boys, we've experienced it, um, you know, in terms Mm. of how so many Christchurch people were dismayed that within weeks of the quake back in 2011, there were rubberneckers from all around the world traipsing through the broken city of Christchurch, snapping away like vultures at our weeping wounds. And it did feel really intrusive. Mm. But obviously, in terms of Hiroshima, the passage of time does help. And Hiroshima is a really true shining example of the power of post-disaster tourism when it's done right. It was your first time in this city. What were your first impressions? What stuck out and thought, this is int- this is different? Yeah. Well, I, did, I went to Hiroshima as part of a general first-time tour to Japan. And despite Hiroshima's horrific backstory, along with Nagasaki, what really surprised me about the city is it's beautiful. It is a beautiful stunningly appealing city, spotlessly clean as you'd expect in Japan. It is just swathed in leafy green spaces, beautiful rivers, magnificent street art, and um, such a strollable city as well. Interestingly, the new Hiroshima did not try and replicate how the city looked pre-war, pre-bombing. So there are very few landmarks uh, that were rebuilt or preserved. Okay, let's flick through, in your view, some of the essential sites, if I can even say that. Yeah, well, the most haunting reminder of the bombing and the one that they did um, safeguard was the H-bomb dome, which is now a World Heritage Site. It's very much the icon of Hiroshima. It's where tens of thousands of residents were instantly incinerated. The landmark was the city's exhibition hall, sort of like, you know, a convention centre back in the day. And it's the only building that has been deliberately left standing since the bombing because it was situated at what um, is known as Ground Zero. So when the first bomb was dropped, it exploded 500 metres above this building, the A-bomb dome. Um, And because it exploded, you know, 500 metres above, it killed its occupants instantly and you can see its twisted girders and its gaping holes and the piles of rubble. It's like a shell-like building, and it's just so compelling. Okay. Um, has Hiroshima, the castle there, they've, they've, that's been rebuilt, hasn't it? Yeah, it's the only one that they actually sort of replicated after the war, um, given its history spans so many centuries. Apparently, there was a huge debate in Hiroshima as to, you know, what should they do going forward? So... They safeguarded the A-bomb dome as a memorial and they replicated how Hiroshima Castle used to look. And it's it's a very welcome mood enhancer to um, counterbalance the emotional weight of seeing that um, uh, A-bomb dome. The amazing thing about the castle is that when you walk into its main courtyard, you'll notice a stand of old trees and you can actually still see the scorch marks 
for, from the bombing in 1945 wow. on those trees, on their trunks. It's quite incredible. Um, there are some more, how can I put this, perhaps um, relaxing, more peaceful yeah. monuments there, like the Peace Memorial Park. That's just extraordinary. Yeah, it's draped along the riverside and um, there's just a bevy of exquisite monuments uh, in this park. I think the saddest one is the Children's Monument, which was actually inspired by an 11-year-old girl who develops leukemia 10 years after the bombing. And um, her story is like world famous now. She believed mm. that if she made a thousand paper cranes, she could overcome leukemia. She soon died, but this children's monument continues to be adorned by fresh paper cranes made by school kids all over Japan and the world for that matter, um, 75 years on. And there is lots of um, artists that recreate that thousands um, yeah. crane thing too. They do. Yeah. yeah. How confronting. How confronting is the museum's perspective on war? Yeah, the museum is obviously uh, an essential part of um, exploring Hiroshima, and it is very in your face. Mm. So, you know, regardless of where you stand on the politics of war and whether the bomb should have been dropped, the museum absolutely speaks to our basic humanity, and some of the displays are gruesome, particularly those who incurred horrific burns and radiation disorders, and there's this Really um, special sort of child themed touch where they've got a whole lot of school uniforms on display, which have all been shredded and burnt by the heat wave uh, when those bombs rained down on Hiroshima. And I mean, that just does stop you in in your tracks. Was there an exhibit uh, that struck out the most to you? Yeah, well, I think it's anything to do with kids. Um, So after seeing the school uniforms, the site that really did it for me was of this trike, a charred and mangled trike. And the trike was actually being ridden by a three-year-old boy called Shin uh, when the blast hit. And this little kid was trapped under the rubble of his family home. He died. His father found Shin under the rubble, still clinging to the handlebars of this trike, which he donated to the museum. So that really is a heart tugger. But my big takeaway about Hiroshima is its renaissance from the embers of tragedy, how it's become such a beautiful city. It's been deliberately designed with its arms wide open to the world. It's a very welcoming place. That is nice. And of course, it's a bit of a red letter year for Japan, isn't it? You've got the Tokyo Olympics taking center stage. Yes, indeed. Now, if you've been listening to earlier episodes of Kiwi Tripsters, you will be aware that we've been giving you plenty of chances to win some prizes from Lonely Planet, the world's number one travel guidebook brand. Indeed. And now, for the very first time, thank you very much, it is our first winner. Time to announce the first winner who rated our podcast on iTunes. So we say congratulations. Come on down, <laughs> Dave Donald. Congratulations, Dave. You've got yourself a Lonely Planet guidebook coming your way. Uh, and all you need to do if you want to be in the draw for something similar is rate our podcast or like our Facebook page and you too could be winning the next Lonely Planet guide. Yes, good luck. Another winner will be announced in our next episode. Up next, we're off to London. We're in London, Mike, and know you love your museums. Yes, I do. If you've ventured inside one of London's offerings every day, um, it would have taken you over nine months to knock off every single museum in London. That's how many wow, they've got, Chris. That's a lot of museums. I don't know. Are you a museum type of person? Yes. If I'm, 
Yes. If I'm walking <laughs> past, I'll have a look in. Right. Put it that way. You're but a I, browser. Yeah, but I wouldn't go out of my way. You're not a destination museum kind of guy? No. Right. Unless okay. it's something to do with music or art or entertainment. Oh, well, there's... So maybe I am. There are horses for courses in London mm-hmm. with so many uh, offerings. Uh, and, I mean, obviously most people who go to London and think museums will think the British Museum. Mm. They'll think the Tate Modern. So if you've done all those sort of big hitters, uh, there are a lot of lesser trafficked venues that can be just as enjoyable, maybe even more enjoyable for people people like Chris Lynch. And there's plenty of sort of oddball museums as well. I do like the look of the Museum of London. Yeah, it's quite small. It's in the city. Um, I've always had a soft spot for this place because it gives you a really digestible dip into 2,000 years of rolling London history. Mm. And a couple of years ago, they marked the 350th anniversary of the Great Fire of London. So they uh, developed at the Museum of London, this really high-impact exhibition into the destruction of the city through the eyes of people who were there at the time. And and it stayed on on display at the museum. It is absolutely superb. You sort of step into Pudding Lane and the bakery where the fire started and see the Inferno systematically devour the city. It is absolutely vivid and gutsy. Um, and it finishes on a very patriotic note, you know, with the with the resurrection of the city from the ashes. Do you know, I'd love to go to Churchill's uh, War Rooms because that's in our museum, isn't it? Yeah. Or well, makes part of it. Well, I, I think, you know, in a loose sort of definition sense, it is a museum, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, I did it recently and it's deep in the bowels of Whitehall, uh, Churchill's secret wartime headquarters. It's an absolute underground labyrinth, this place. And um, what I love about it is it's been frozen in time from 70 years ago. So when you walk in, you'll see the map room and all the artifacts, which is where officers tracked battles across the globe. You will see where Churchill worked and slept. Uh, the first hotline phone that was established uh, to the White House and all sorts of personal possessions like a half-smoked, heavily chewed La Corona cigar that Winston liked. The war rooms wow. are Truly, an, an amazing experience. Do they do they look anyway lush? No, not at all. Pretty Just sort pretty of simple. Grim. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about uh, the natural history? Yeah. Well, the natural history museum is in South Kensington, and I think it's probably London's most beautiful museum. It is massive, and I think. If you just are looking for a museum for a quick dip, you may be turned off the Natural History Museum because it is so colossal, you'll think, oh my God, I'm going to need days to do it justice. But I actually think it is worth going in there. Even if you just want to stake out a few, you know, sort of choice um, exhibitions and displays. If you've seen the Paddington movie in recent years, of course, the Natural History Museum is supposedly where the cruel taxidermist played by Nicole Kidman, attempted to add the bear to her stuffed collection. Um, There are actually (laughs) over 70 million specimens inside the Natural History Museum. But I tell you what, if you've ever wanted to see a dodo, uh, you've come to the right place. I even spotted a southern brown kiwi from Aotearoa, although he looked decidedly emaciated (laughs) and in dire need of more stuffing, maybe from Nicole Kidman, uh, the big draw, though, at the Natural History Museum is the dinosaur gallery yeah. and the roaring animatronic T-Rex. He is fantastic, 
and the cues for that are just mega. Often they will spill all the way back down the road to Harrods. Did you check out any macabre options? Well, for a -a one-of-a-kind experience, my pick, if you are into oddball stuff, would be to go to London Bridge and go to the old operating theatre. And this is the only remaining 19th century operating theatre in England where you can watch simulated demonstrations of, of surgery, and oh. you can even volunteer to be operated on if you want, Chris. Oh, lovely. Um, you might get a little um, bit, of, bit, a little bit of a facelift, a bit okay. of a touch. I could do with that. Um, the equipment was, of course, very primitive back in the 19th century. In fact, to look at it when you're there, it's quite horrifying. It is horror movie material, oh. very invasive surgeries like amputations. Um, apparently, a skilled surgeon could perform an amputation in under 60 seconds, but novices would hack and chisel away oh. at your mangled limbs for quite some time. So oh. it's a gruesomely riveting museum to check out. Okay. Speaking of things disappearing, do you yeah. like that segue? Oh, well done. Well <laughs> done. Bit of magic there, Chris. Magic circle. Yes, the magic circle. Now, this is actually, I'm using a very loose definition of the word museum here because the magic circle is actually a private club in Houston for magicians. And it's cloaked in mystery, but they operate a museum uh, adjacent to the private club, absolutely packed with paraphernalia from the world's great illusionists. And they've got all sorts of cool stuff there, like Harry Houdini's handcuffs. So if you're into all things magic, it's a very fun diversion. Okay. Any other quirky museums worth a bit of a nosy? Well, there are endless options, but if you are a nostalgia junkie, I reckon you will rock your socks off at the Museum of Brands. Now, this is in Notting Hill. And we're not talking about Louis Vuitton or Mm -hmm. Gucci. But generally, it's sort of stuff that was in a larder. uh, 12,000 original items from Victorian times onwards that once took pride of place on, you know, family kitchen tables. So they're mostly decommissioned products. But it is quite cold, so they've got packets of cereal, you know, baked beans, custard powder that used to be made in 1895, you name it. Okay. Very cool. I was going to say, what, taking you back to your childhood, perhaps not 18 Well, century. maybe your grandparents' childhood, yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, thank you so much for joining us on another edition of Kiwi Tripsters. We will be back in a fortnight with a fresh episode. In the meantime, we would love you to rate and subscribe to our podcast on the service of your choice. And also, be sure to like our page on Facebook. Absolutely. And you can check out our show notes on the website, kiwitripsters.co.nz. And on the next episode, Mike will sweep you through the fascinating capital of Lithuania. And fresh from doing it, Chris will take us on a truly epic flight across New Zealand's Southern Alps on the Grand Traverse. See you then. See you then. And that's a wrap for this episode of Kiwi Tripsters. Liked what you listened to? Then join us for our next episode of Kiwi Tripsters, where we bring you more travel inspiration, giveaways, and insider knowledge with expert guests on the show. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram, and visit us on kiwitripsters.co.nz. But most importantly, subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts, and tell us what you think of our show. Till next time, safe travels. Safe travels.